for Pulse. So hello and welcome to another episode of the Digital Doctor podcast. I'm Stephen Wing and I could not be more excited about this episode for many reasons. We'll go through them. First one is we have four people on this episode. So there's myself, there's Ed Wallet. Hello. There's Wakeyon Wong. Hey, hi. And we have a special guest. LJ, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm LJ and I'm the first guest of the Digital Doctor podcast. Yay! Yay! <laughs> and the so, first the first woman as well. Very important. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah. And um and those of you who know uh, uh, LJ will will probably guess what the uh episode is going to be about. The other reason I'm excited is we've recently been put on iTunes and maybe Ed you should talk a little bit about iTunes and their submission process without maybe being too negative. Well, I don't want to be too negative because we depend very much on Apple to actually get us on the page and we're actually on the on like the front page at the moment. So, wow. um, but I, I must say, you know, I, I, it was a real joy submitting the podcast to iTunes and they've, they've really made the process so much easier. And I, I'm, I'm very thankful to the folks over at Cupertino and um, just a big thank you to them. You're doing great work. Keep it up. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Apple. So this episode is all about e-portfolios um, and o-portfolio, and that will become a bit clearer later. So uh, I think I'm right in saying that we've all used an e-portfolio before. Is that right? I have. Certainly have. I think some of us are still using one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly still using one. Um, when I pay them some money, I'll, I'll have one. And Ed, did, did, you, did you miss it? Or you must have used one as well, too. I did use one. I used to, in fact, one of the, the, the low points of my medical career um, from a disciplinary point of view, was using an e-portfolio. Um, and you see, I can say these things because, you know, I'm now no longer, um, what do I say, no longer a doctor or no longer a... No longer a... I'm no longer a training... No longer a practicing a tra- doctor. A, a training doctor. Yeah. Or practicing doctor. Did um, you, do you have, are you listed on the GMC website as having a license? Yeah, for the moment. For the moment. Yeah, I'm going to have to do something about that soon, though. So you could just, you could walk into a hospital tomorrow, can you, and just you know start writing up drugs and things. I do it all the time <laughs> <laughs> for yourself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So no. So if the GMC are listening, those were jokes. <laughs> yeah, those were jokes. <laughs> so yeah, um, I mean, the GMC are big fans. They, you know, they email us all the time. They're big. <laughs> so um, let's kick it off. I think LJ. I mean, everyone knows who we are, but let's let's find out a little bit more about you. Okay. Um, so I'm a respiratory physician in training, so I'm a respiratory registrar, and I have had the joy of using ePortfolios since I was a core medical trainee, so that's three or four years now, um, and I started getting interested in this area because I just got driven a bit mad. I got myself some lovely, an iPhone and some other lovely things that did really nice software, and I started using WordPress, which I thought was a really nice interface, and I wasn't very techie, but I thought, this is really great, there's some cool stuff out there. Um, but in my life as a medical trainee, I had to use the e-portfolio, and I got a bit annoyed with it, so I started a blog. The blog. Always a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> and I believe it's called nhseportfoliorevolution.com, is that right? That's right, yeah. And we'll put that in the show notes for people to go sure. and visit. It's a great place. It's had a lot of hits. It kind of surprised me. So, I mean, you know, I thought I was just a person who liked to complain. And I tried to complain in a constructive way because it started off by me thinking, well, this seems to be taking up a lot of my time. And my time's quite precious because there's never enough of it for anyone, but particularly for doctors in training. Um, and I'd quite like the system to be better, but I didn't really know how to make that happen. And that was sort of the start of the blog. And then it became very clear that lots of other people were very interested in this too and also thought that maybe it could be better. And it's kind of grown up from there. 
I think it's a great platform. You know, like how do you get changed? How do you get something you want? And you've used the blog as a sort of campaigning platform to to air your views and. And you've sort of built a little community, I think, around, um, you know, like a tribe of people who have uh, got similar values to you. I mean, there's no shortage of people who've got problems with, with the e-portfolio. So I think it's really great that, you know, was it your idea or? Yeah, um, <laughs> I didn't really realise that people would kind of get so interested in it. But I think the point is that um, lots of people are very positive about the concept of an e-portfolio and about IT to support both our kind of medical work, but also our mm-hmm. education and training. Um but what we've got currently just doesn't work. So there's a lot of kind of people just going, yeah, this could be better and I'd like to help make it better and I'm not sure how. And it's kind of become a bit of a focal point for that kind of thought process. Yeah. So perhaps we should rewind a little bit and actually think a little bit about what what is the job of an e-portfolio? What is it um, meant to do? The jobs to be done approach. Yeah, um what what do you think LJ? I mean you you clearly have had a lot of time to reflect and think about this. Um uh, what do you think it was it's designed to do in its current state and do you think it achieves what it's it's meant to do? I think that's um a really great question but also um a little bit more of a complex one than it first sounds because it really depends who you are answering that question. So I think if you are a um royal college or the UK Foundation Programme, you might think that it has a slightly different job to what a trainee thinks. So you might think that it, the job is to kind of track what people are doing and make sure people trainees aren't failing and kind of keep an eye on them. And you might find some value in the data that's been generated by it. If you're a trainee, you might think it has multiple purposes in kind of an ideal world. So one is to log assessments that are necessary for you to be able to continue your training to um, collect lots of kind of bits of information and data that mean that you can pass your appraisal at the end of the year, but also for your kind of personal learning and and development. And I think it does some of those jobs better than the others, the system we currently have. So yes, you can log assessments, although that's quite time-consuming and there are barriers towards that. Um, And yes, you can gather some of the information required for an appraisal, but again, that process is just more difficult than it needs to be because of the lack of flexibility. But it doesn't really do this other thing of kind of saying, well, I'm, I'm an adult learner, I'm a kind of responsible person, I want to learn for my own good, um, and it doesn't really support that particularly well, I don't think. You bring up a really good point there. Um, do you think that maybe it suffers from trying to do too many jobs at the same time? Um... I don't think so. I think it's just that the different people using it, the stakeholders, which is normally the kind of term we use, have different views of what it what it should do. So I think it's one job, but that's not necessarily the job that actually most of the people using the system want it to do. It's just that the users aren't actually the customers in this kind of point of view, so struggle to get much change from their point of view. And what I think is really interesting about that is that it's it's usually the trainees that won't will have the least impact on how the system is developed because they're not commissioning the system, um, and they're probably the furthest away from the the development side and and certainly the strategic side of ePortfolio. I know they probably have trainee representatives, but um, but I think your kind of initiative with the blog and building up a community of people who are interested is really great to try and inform the process of development in the future. Yeah, and that's always what we've hoped from the beginning. And actually, when the, I've started the blog, there was really there was no representation on these kind of bodies. So um, there was an email address, but that was about it. And now the Royal College of Physicians, for example, has responded really positively and said, 
yeah, actually, it'd be quite good to have some trainee input and have created a user group. The foundation program also have one where they have foundation trainees, but many of the other colleges don't have any user representation. So that's kind of, they've been a bit left behind there. Yeah. So um, I know just taking a slight step back, so do you have any um, idea what used to happen before an electronic portfolio? How would the deanery and the colleges track um, trainees? I think that's a really interesting question, actually, because sometimes when I'm talking to people about this and trying to kind of figure out, well, what do you think the portfolio is doing and what do I think it's doing? I say, well, what happened before? And when I was a foundation trainee, I had a paper portfolio. And actually, the kind of process went along that the, you know, the GMC and the Royal Colleges and all these kind of higher bodies had a view of what trainees do, what kind of things they needed to prove in order to pass their appraisals. But it was the responsibility of the trainee to, to do that, to gather the evidence, and it was all on paper. And then to turn up to their appraisal with all the evidence there. So during the kind of rest of the year, there wasn't really the kind of spying on them. There was a, a relationship between the trainee and their supervisor, and that was felt to be enough in terms of kind of supporting them. So there are some things that actually were quite good about the paper system, although I wouldn't ever want to go back. But it did kind of put the ball in the court of the trainee more as driving the process. Yeah. What about how you guys met? How did you guys meet um, all together? Because you guys met very recently at the uh, NHS Hack Day, didn't you? Oh, and the Digital Doctor Conference, Stephen. Don't forget that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, we all met because of that, certainly. That Sunday um, was, was, was good. I had some great chats about your portfolios. Um, I from my re from my recollection, which might be wrong, um, I think it was through the blog actually. Uh, I think LJ it must be through sub certain people who emailed, and when we got um, a hold of your um, blog and viewed it and read it, thought that you know, and during NHS Hack Day might be a good opportunity to see what can be developed uh, as an alternative or as a prototype of how it might be done differently to how it is done now. And I think it kind of all spiraled from there, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, what's been really interesting about this whole thing is finding this whole group of people who have a similar interest, many of whom have a lot more knowledge than I do and a lot more skills, but lots of interest in this kind of idea of, well, IT isn't really working in medicine in general, and I guess my specific interest is in the kind of education aspect of it. But yeah, it kind of came across that, through like that, and I think it was Carl um, who emailed me. Anyway, I ended up at NHS Hack Day, not really having any clue about what was going to happen, and just finding this whole group of people who were really enthusiastic, wanted to change things, and the ability to, for me as a clinician to talk to developers directly and go, I kind of want this thing that might be to go, okay, let's make that happen. So, right, we've, got, we've established that there are things we'd like to change. We've got a group of people willing to change it. We're taking things forward. And let's go back to Wei Kyung, your point. What are the sort of jobs that the portfolio needs to do and who are involved? So there's obviously the trainees. There are... Um, who else is going to need to be? There'll be the, the supervisors, like the clinical and educational supervisors. There'll be the director of medical education locally at the hospital. I guess they, they will need to use it. And the trust, do, do the trust use the portfolios? So I think within each trust there, as during in their postgraduate medical education department, there's someone that is assigned a task to manage it locally where they can, you know, uh, put people on the system, especially the educational supervisors. And that's how they run it. But do, do they use the, the data or, or, you know, for anything? 
I mean, the, in a trust level, it's kind of more of an admin role. Yeah. Um, the kind of people with kind of educational responsibility do look at the data, but I guess I have mixed feelings about this. I think we have a system now and we have a lot of kind of um, responsibility with certain individuals, but actually it's not necessary that we need to replicate that. If we're looking to the future and going, what would we actually want? I think we have a lot of people thinking that they're using the data in a way that maybe they're not. So does it really identify failing trainees? I'm not convinced the data's out there that this is the best way to do that. Stephen, going back to your original question on my opinion on what is the current job that is being done by mm. the um, by the e-portfolio, at the moment, I think it's very much seen as a way that is relatively convenient to have a tick box exercise to get people through their annual appraisal. Because during my annual appraisal, for example, the first thing they check is just the sheer number of assessments that I have had done on me, but not the, what the assessments are, what I gained from it, and how I have changed my practice based on it. It's very much a numbers game. So I think at the moment, the job to be done is very much as an annual tracking tool, full stop. And I don't think it's being used for any other purpose com- except that. That's been my experience as well, Ed. When you were using it, what 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 did you think of it? What were you, what, what what were you sort of using it for, and what did you think people were doing with it? So, I mean, I was a G- GP trainee, um, and our portfolio is um, slightly different. I'm led to believe. Um, certainly, at the time when I was involved in GP training, there was a very strong emphasis on the. Um, more deep the deeper aspects of personal reflection i think that's probably the right way to to say it um not so much focus on the sort of academic things really you know the 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 knowledge base but really on the more um how can i put this in a way that is not going to upset people (laughs) Uh, you should just invent like a filter for for you know things you say to, to you know not, through, like to not upset people, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're probably right. It's getting, I, I seem to be getting worse at it as well. I seem to be upsetting more people with each passing month. Well, maybe that's <laughs> a, a good thing, I don't know. Um, but it, it seemed to be very, very fluffy, the focus. Um, so, you know, it was, it was more about long-form entries, not logging what you were doing. That really wasn't important at all. Yeah. It was more about being in a situation and then writing a reflective piece on that now i don't have a, a problem with that I, I still think fundamentally that most of our reflection as relatively intelligent human beings can be done inside our heads um and does not need to be proved with three entries a week into a logbook. um okay. i mean I, I i you know i think it's right to encourage people to do it i i think you know, and subsequently, actually, you know, when it was at its its peak, we were having to write three entries a week. Um, mm. Interestingly, that is now gone down to one entry every two weeks. Having spoken to some of my colleagues who are still in the GP training, my ex colleagues who are still in the tr- uh, GP training program, um, and it, the the reason for that really had to do with the 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 supervisors didn't have time to read all the entries. Um, I think that's a really interesting point, which is. It's partly the technology and partly the problem is that the kind of ethos around these kind of tools and and who's deciding on what is valid and the kind of culture around them. So the GP one is very focused on reflection. The physician one is very focused on assessments. And there seems to be this kind of common thing of, well, I'm just doing it for the sake of it, which is a shame because there's lots of learning opportunities, as you said. 
And believe me, the, the supervisors see it in exactly the same way as oh, well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, every single week I would receive an email um, from from one of the program directors or from my clinical supervisor, my educational supervisor, sorry, um, who was very concerned about my um, my lack of reflective entries um, as a marker of my medical practice. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, say, well, why haven't you done them? You should do them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I just, I just didn't see it as a useful tool. I, I, I cannot, I, every time I sat down and this was something shared with, with my colleagues as well. Every time I sat down to write one of these things, I did not feel that I gained anything from it. Um, but I felt I had to, I had to do it. Um, and I, I did a bit of an experiment. This was very naughty and I, I'm allowed, I guess I'm allowed to say this now, um, because it doesn't really matter for me anymore um but i uh, uh i think i think i probably told Stephen this um but i have a i have a a, a cat a maine coon cat um who occasionally as cats so often do get fur balls i wrote a series of four reflective entries on the way that the uh the cat coughing up a fur ball made me reflect upon life and uh clinical practice and the role of carer and physician in our modern society, and it was it was a uh, it was uh, clearly um, <laughs> clearly not meant <laughs> clearly not a very serious entry. But it would they loved it. They um, loved it. They loved it. And uh, you know, it, 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 before I knew it, it, you know, it had been it had been it had been hoisted from it, its place, as far as I'm concerned, from the the, the garbage can into this um like perfect examples <laughs> of <laughs> reflective entries that were being distributed to all the gp training schools oh dear. For, oh dear for the start of the thing now of course you know that was a very immature thing to do and uh, indeed yeah and, and i couldn't i couldn't possibly you know condone doing such a thing um but I, it, it was I, it was a sort of experiment for me um but as you say it's not that you are against the concept of reflection it's just that being made to write it down an arbitrary number of times a week mm. led you to want to challenge that in a yes. way that you chose to <laughs> exactly and perhaps so, it shows that the kind of one size fits all approach to what is educationally valuable and how that is tracked doesn't really work yes it was my feeling that i could essentially write anything on that piece and as long as it was written as long as there was a I, I should have actually tried just submitting lorem ipsum text and see if anyone noticed um <laughs> because or whether they were just counting the entries because you know i think that you know they were more concerned about a number of entries mm. rather than actually the quality of each entry and whether it actually made sense um and, and was of any meaning uh, um so i guess what i'm sort of hearing is that on the one side wake young you, you um highlight very clearly that it's all about numbers and mm. about data and about people not having the time to read these things and they're just looking at you know statistics and um, on the other hand actually what people find perhaps maybe a bit more useful and that what other people using ePortfolio are doing are looking at the reflectiveness and the quality of the work or, or you know maybe not looking at it but they should be looking at the quality of the work so they're two very different things and I heard a story and I'm not sure if it's entirely true um, LJ, maybe you'll be able to fill us in that um, on the ePortfolio before you had sort of workplace-based assessments that had lots of number, like a number analog scale, yeah. so like a, a category scale, sorry, and um, and also you had the reflective pieces. But apparently they're trying to 
do away with the number portion of it. Is that so right? this is. So this is specifically to do with the workplace-based assessments, which are things like, you know, so I go and I see a patient and I take a history from them about their breathlessness and mm -hmm. someone watches me do it and then they give me feedback. And the way they used to do that was to give me some kind of free text comment feedback on the form that I would send them. But there yeah. was also a rating which said whether I was at the expected level for my training or above or below. Um, and there's been a move to remove those those kind of category bits and just leave the free text specifically in the foundation program but also in other ones and so this has caused a rename of the assessments so this is kind of an educational thing which says well the problem is that no one likes to be average in medicine so if you say that someone is meeting expectations that's like a massive slap around the face uh, <laughs> and people don't take that very well and so there's just grade inflation so the the kind of idea is well what's the point of doing these workplace-based assessments it's to give feedback so that we can develop. So actually what you really need is some decent feedback. And actually having a number scale means people are quite lazy and just tick a number and don't give any feedback. So to try and address that, they've made it all very free text. But there's limited evidence as to whether that has made the feedback any more valuable, unfortunately. Yeah. So I was going to say, LJ, um, wasn't there, I mean, I remember from my foundation program, um, ePortfolio, that there was also a number of listed categories um, like criterion and they each had a scale from 1 to 10 and someone would go through and rank where they thought I was um, or, you know, score each, each criterion so it would be like communication skills uh, written communication skills and a mark you know 10 being good 1 being bad uh, out of 10 and then uh, verbal communication skills communication with patients uh, communication with the team uh, knowledge, uh, practical skills, and they would go down and rank all of these things. Is this? Actually, um, are you referring hmm? to your curriculum? No, no, no. It wasn't the curriculum. It was it was uh, in a workplace based assessment. Okay. Uh, I think it was uh, a multi source feedback form. Okay, so that's a specific type of workplace based assessment, which is a, also called a three sixty degree appraisal. Yes, yes, that's yeah. it. I mean, do they still do that? Yeah, so that's so there are different types of workplace-based assessments. So, and the one people have very mixed feelings about them, and some people think that some are valuable and some aren't. But actually, the one that people tend to like, if you see both informal and formal feedback, is the three-sixty-degree appraisal. So people yeah. want to know what other people that they're working with think about them, and mm -hmm. if they're any good or not. So that tends to be the one that people are like, "Yeah, that's a useful exercise." Yeah, because what I found really great about that, and I hope I hope they're not going to do away with the the number scales on those kind of assessments because what I found really useful is I actually it means a shame that I had to do this myself but I actually took all these my scores and put them in an Excel spreadsheet for each criterion and monitored myself each period throughout the year to see and as you say there is grade inflation so like the the average score would be a six or a seven across the yeah. board because yeah. no one wants to put five because you know no one really wants to offend you when they're doing the assessment unless they really do not like you yeah. and you know if you know if you don't like someone you you know probably not going to ask them to do an assessment for you, although you should, and we'll probably come on to that. But um, so say the average score might be a six or seven, um, you could quite clearly see if you got enough results, if you had enough data points, you could see where perhaps the score was starting to slip in specific criteria or where maybe you started to do quite well in a few things. And I kind of used that score um, in my, uh, uh, my Excel spreadsheet to, to sort of work out where I needed to concentrate my efforts on. That's really interesting because that's a really good use of the data 
Um, but it's just a shame that you kind of had to lift the data out of your ePortfolio, put it into an Excel spreadsheet mm -hmm. in order to be able to look at that in that kind of comparative way. So that would be a really useful thing, and I'm sure you could apply that to lots of other types of data and types of assessments and other things that you would collect. But at the moment, the ePortfolio itself doesn't really have that capability to be able to either display or kind of track your progress. Yeah, because I'm kind of like worried a little bit about the reflectiveness because reflective comments are nice, um, but I don't see how they're a really tool for change. So as an individual, I want to know uh, what areas am I not so good at? And am, if, if I try and address those, am I actually making any difference? Am I improving over time? And with reflective comments, you never really get a sense of that. They're nice to point out some very specific issues. But, I mean, rarely did I find two, uh, you know, free te text comments that were the same from different people. Mm. Apart I mean, from I think there are very the mixed views about that. So, so people have very strong opinions both about reflection and about kind of uh, free text comments. And it, and it depends a lot on your kind of theoretical standpoint and also your experience. But I think we all need a mix. I think that's probably the the case. We all need a mix of feedback from different people, from different kind of points of view and in different ways. But we need to be able to use all that data in a way that makes it easy for us to kind of look at it as a whole and go, okay, where are my weak points? Where are my strong points? Where should I focus myself for my development? Yeah, I mean, mixing is always good unless it's uh, alcoholic drinks. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, Stephen, did you ever compare how well you thought you were doing, compare it with what other people think how well you were doing? Oh, God, I thought you were going to ask me about alcoholic drinks. But yeah, um, <laughs> I, I mean... I didn't, not in a formal way. I mean, I, 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 but it was interesting to look at it. Uh, and, and some of the things that maybe uh, the data suggested that I should improve on, um, I actually thought that I wasn't bad at. And I think mm. it was quite illuminating to just, just look at the statistics and just see, you know, w what are the areas I need to improve on? And some of them weren't ones that I expected. So, yes, I mean, in a way, when you look at the data, you do compare to what you, what you thought. But I never did in a formal way. Because um, I recently done a kind of... Um... Uh, multi-source feedback and one of the things you have to do before you even send out the request for feedback on yourself is to perform a self-assessment and when the report came back you get to see how well you rate compared to the average of how other people rate you in several areas and mm -hmm. then it gives you ideas of where you think you might be doing uh, well but actually you're not and also the converse area it also helps you identify your strengths which you can then use um, more at your, in your workplace. The biggest thing, the biggest problem I have with ePortfolio is not the fact the website's crap, uh, but it's getting better, is, um, is people gaming the system. And it's inevitable. And I do it, uh, although I try not to. And I have not done it in the past. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's backfired on me. But the problem is, is that there are, for, there are different stakeholders and that the ePortfolio is validated to identify failing trainees. Or trainees in difficulty, I think they call them, um, mm. because no one likes to fail, and it's not validated for uh, excellence. And yeah. as a doctor, I don't want to just be a mediocre doctor; I want to be an excellent doctor, and that's very hard. And um, I think people game the system by choosing who they want to do their assessments, and sometimes it comes down to basically a popularity contest. So the most likable and popular doctors maybe get better assessments than those who are not so popular. And sometimes you have to be cool to be kind. So, you know, what about, I mean, the metrics that we use to measure doctors are a bit silly. So what if, for example, you have to be 
a bit of an idiot or you know a bit outspoken um, to to get the right diagnosis. What if you are consistently the person, you know, more often who has the right diagnosis, and you're not going to win any friends by saying, "Look, I think you're wrong. I think we might be missing something here. Can we just do this test?" If you say that to your registrar, you know, you're not going to be friends with them, and you ask for an assessment from them, you're going to see a little bit cocky, and you're probably going to get a rubbish assessment. So yeah. people, gone now, Jay. I was just going to say that what was quite interesting about that, so I started the website and kind of the initial idea of the blog was to kind of look at, well, it, technically this website is not really meeting my needs, there's no app, it's it's very clunky. What's developed and has been very strong is that there are kind of multiple ways that people are dissatisfied with the whole thing. And that's not only technologically, it's also with the kind of the um, criteria we set and the way that people then view postgraduate training in general. And the fact that trainees don't feel like anyone cares if they're better than the average. All anyone cares about is that they tick the right boxes and jump through the hoops and carry on and turn up to work. And I think that's such a shame because there are so many people, as you say, we're kind of, you know, passionate people about our jobs. We've worked pretty hard. Most people are striving for excellence, not competence. And I think that's a kind yeah. of overarching theme in, in what people feel about postgraduate training. So I'm hoping that's going to change quite soon in the future. But and what was it you I was going to bring that back to something you said, Wakey. I, I started answering a question, but I went off on a bit of a monologue. <laughs> like, <rant. laughs> I forgot what your question was. You, it was no, it was just about whether, uh, I mean, this question might be directed to LJ as well. I guess one thing that ePortfolio e doesn't do is to allow ourselves to assess ourselves and then compare it to what really happens out there and how other people see us. Because I actually find that a very, very useful exercise. Because I have, I've had had trainees where I've done um, work, uh, work assessments with them. And I've actually put the rating, you know, below expectation for this level of training. And they get very shocked by it because no one ever does that. Uh, but actually, if, if no one actually tells them that, then they might never have a chance to, to improve. And, and I, so I think, you know, how well do you think you're doing compared to how well other people think you're doing is a very interesting uh, thing that the ePortfolio, I don't think, does take uh, advantage of. Plus, people talk as well. So, like, everyone knows in the hospital who's the consultant who gives the best feedback, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, the person who writes really honest uh, statements about people and probably uses the ePortfolio. So, say if you take five uh, on a score between one and ten as being average which you probably should do um if you if you do it properly you actually appear to be a bit negative in comparison to all of the rest of the people who inflate their answers so if you try and give someone honest feedback genuinely trying to help them you end up looking like mm, a bit of a misery guts and no one asks for you for any feedback and everyone knows who the people are who give really good assessments so you're going to send your assessment to them because no one wants to look bad and I think the reason for that is that there are different stakeholders. So this, you want to look good when you go up against people who are scrutinizing you. And but I it's guess inevitable. That's another, yeah, that's another question about, well, what are these assessments for and who are they for? And I think there just seems to be confusion reigning. So if these are formative assessments, which are, means that they shouldn't really count for anything, then they should be only for our personal development. Then actually we should kind of be welcoming Mm. At the beginning of the year, getting relatively low marks and then seeing a progression. But I think there's, you know, there are kind of multiple things that feed into that not being true. One is that we don't 
really understand what the point of them is necessarily very well. People aren't trained in kind of how to assess trainees particularly well. There's not a lot of investment in training and supporting the role of the supervisors, unfortunately, and service provision kind of wins out over education most of the time. And the other thing is that, again, the software itself doesn't really do that kind of tracking thing very well. So mm -hmm. if you look at your portfolio and you look at everything in it, it looks just a bit like a filing cabinet. I can't really see very easily in a nice visual way what I was like at the beginning of the year compared to the end. So there are kind of multiple bits that feed into it, which means it just doesn't really do what it kind of could in a very effective way. So it's almost like it's just a paper replacement without taking advantage of the fact that it's actually a database with digitized yeah. data. Yeah, and can I think that's my problem with it. You yeah. know, there's so much data in there that potentially if you could make it look all beautiful and come out with some automatic graphs and a timeline, it could support that kind of wish of an individual and of their and of their supervisor to track progress over time rather than it very much being a kind of um, at each time point logging a thing but not really connected to anything else that's going on. So what scared me really was the GMC surveys uh, or the yeah. PMB survey or whatever they call it. Um, they have been thrown out of all proportion. So um, I think that I don't know what quite was the reason uh, for starting them off or who was supposed to be looking at them. But now uh, funding or particular organisations involved in healthcare and particularly, um, you know, when the deanery, the educational deaneries used, you know, exist. I know it's all changing with the medical, medical education mm. England and devolving to lead providers and everything. But when the deaneries existed and were fully in charge of everything, um, they could decide on the amount of trainees. So I was involved in the experience of uh, London, whereby they were, had to, in, in medicine, they were told to reduce the number of trainees. And they obviously can't do that uh, by reducing people's salaries. So they had to cut their budget. So they had to reduce the number of trainees. And how do you decide such a thing? Which hospitals get trainees and which hospitals don't? Now, it's very easy where the education in that hospital is particularly poor to pull a trainee from that hospital and say, look, you're not training your trainees very well, therefore you don't get to have one until you sort yourselves out. That's fair enough. But the results of the PMETB survey started becoming very, very relevant and very important. And the, whether a trust or not got a trainee was in some way based on the trainee's responses to the PMETB survey. That throws up a whole load of issues about what the trust tell the trainees to write and what the, what the, what the trainees feel they want to write on the PMAP survey and all of that kind of stuff. But it's an unexpected consequence of having a data set. Mm. And I feel the e-portfolio, I'm a bit worried about it in some ways because if you truly want to improve yourself, you have to ask people, especially the people who don't like you and you think don't like you, why do you not like me? What is it about my practice you don't like? And you have to try and be honest um, with, with everybody and get a good cross, you know, good cross-sectional representation of what you're like as a doctor. And there's no incentive for me to do that, especially there's a big disincentive when I know that, I mean, I'm being scrutinized on it and it may affect things, you know, it may affect things that I'm not aware of may come up in the future. I so guess I that think, comes down. Yeah, I guess that comes down to the point of who owns the data in an e-portfolio. And I think at the moment it's very weighted in favour of um, the institutions because that's how it's built up. So mm -hmm. the the customer that that commissioned the system were the royal colleges. So they've always been in kind of the driving seat. I think if I was going to create a new system starting from today. I would say that the data should rest with the trainees and they should own the e-portfolio and choose who they share that data with. 
And obviously there would need to be some kind of mature discussions and agreements about, well, if I have an educational supervisor, they need to see pretty much everything in my portfolio. But perhaps at my, my ARCP, not all of that needs to be shown. So if I've got negative um, feedback, but it's been constructive and useful for my development, maybe at my ARCP at the end of the year, that doesn't all need to be shown. Obviously, any kind of adverse events and very serious things would need to be brought up, but perhaps it kind of the the balance should be tipped further in favour of the of the trainee deciding on what's viewed and what's not and by whom. But that would need a you know a huge overhaul of how we currently work with these things. LJ, uh, it was quite funny because when you were talking about ownership of data, it makes me reflect on the movement of what's happening generally in medicine and how mm. saying that health records should belong first with the patients. Yeah. Uh, but else at the moment, health records, if you like, gets controlled by the institutions and patients almost need to ask permission to have a look at it. And I guess that's very similar and perhaps the whole yeah. world generally is moving that way. So I, I think you have a way, Kyung, but have you heard of the Comet Initiative? No, no, please enlighten me. So uh, the Comet Initiative uh, is an acronym, stands for Core Outcome Measures in Infectiveness Trials. I had to look it up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, the, 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 the crux of this organisation is that they try and make sure that clinical trials are measuring outcomes that are of relevance to patients. I think mm. that's the idea. And um, I guess maybe the portfolio should do the same kind of thing. So all of the things that I'm measuring mm. maybe aren't benefiting patients at all. And I, I, I mean, I've never asked a patient to fill in an assessment for me. And I sometimes have to ask off the record. I find it useful to ask patients that I look after and, um, and to also ask my colleagues, you know, off the record, be honest, what do you think so that I can reflect on it and train? And maybe we should make the outcomes or the things that we're measuring actually clinically relevant to patients. That's uh, that's I, I I will support that kind of movement, but as LJ says, it uh, that will require a big change of how what people think of what the job of an e-portfolio is. Um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to kind of um change the direction of the conversation slightly because uh, being the digital doctor conference, I thought we need to start talking some techie stuff. Um, yeah, maybe I can contribute then as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, LJ, if I'm not mistaken, when you first set up the blog, a lot of the initial comments was not so much about you know the philosophy behind NHS ePortfolio, but most people were just complaining about clunky website, slow, yeah. I want an app, I want a different way of doing it. Um, yeah. is, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things is, why is there no app? This is crazy. You know, we walk around the hospitals... Um, with our iPhones or our other smartphone technologies are available. Um, most doctors have some smartphone technology. And we do these assessments, but there's no way to log learning on the go. So there should be an app. And we've been talking about this for a year or two. Uh, the first incarnation is supposed to come out in February, but I understand it will only have very limited functionality. That was kind of one really big thing. The other things about the site itself were... Um, things about how uh, the kind of filing system works, how it's not very easy to find anything, there's no search function. Um, for a long time you had to link every individual tiny piece of data you inputted with a curriculum item, which meant just hundreds of clicks, which seemed to be unnecessary. Um, and then there were other things about just, just kind of it didn't look very pretty. And some people think this is being a bit silly, but I think aesthetics are really important. Um, and that was quite came over quite strongly. Design and the way something looks and is not superficial. I mean, it it completely changes the way that you interact with a product. 
Yeah. I mean, look, look at, look at, look at Apple, for example, you know, the, the people want, if people want to use a product, they can do great things with it. And if, if it's something is ugly, not fit for purpose, not well designed, then people will not use it. They will not want to use it. They will see it as an absolute chore to, yeah. to do. And it, that may sound very superficial, but it's not just about pretty colors. It's actually about usability. It's about when you use it, you should feel a buzz. You should feel a little bit of, a little bit of dopamine, you know, circulating in your system. And, and, yeah. and actually you should feel that this is something that is not, is not just a box to be filled, but this is something which is I'm enjoying using and is making me better and making me feel good about it. Um, quite a lot of the comments that come up compare other systems that people have enjoyed using. So lots of comments come up about things like WordPress and about uh, other sites and other bits of technology that people really are very enthusiastic about. Yeah, and I think this is great because this is, this is the, the part of the, the movement towards, you know, users really expecting and demanding of their systems that they look and behave in a certain way. It's sort of a democratization of technology almost where, you know, if you, if you put something out there and it looks like crap and it doesn't work properly, um, no matter who you are, if you, even if you're the Royal college and you're regulating a group of trainees or, or whoever, then people are not going to use it and they're going to fight against it. Um, I think that was quite interesting. So I've met with the Royal college of physicians and as I say, they've been very responsive to kind of the idea of trying to improve things. It's complicated. Um, but one of the things that I think they, they kind of did buy into was the fact that this is the public face of their organization to their trainees. And so what they're delivering from a technology point of view is communicating something about them as an organization and about how they feel about their trainees. And that's not a very positive message at the present time. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think the argument that it's complicated is no longer acceptable. I, I think, you know, breaking down the barriers and, and getting the stakeholders involved is not in the, in the modern technologically orientated world we live in, not difficult at all. I mean, it's incredibly easy to get feedback on products. It's incredibly easy to be agile now and to actually change these things. Um, the difficulty sometimes comes, and I've experienced this myself, and it's more of something to do with the way that software products are commissioned by organizations. Yeah. So a software product will be specified, often with good initial involvement of the stakeholders, those people who are going to be using it, and it will be a spec will be built. And then the software company will take that spec and disappear for four months and come back with their product. Now, if at that point, after four months, the stakeholders look at the product and they're not happy with it, then the software company won't just take it back and have another go because they can't afford to do that. Being They're being paid a fixed price. They've got a budget to do it on. What happens is they have to, they'd have to charge the same amount again. Yeah. So it's actually, it's a, the, the, the problem is much more deep seated and it comes down to the way that these things are, are, are provisioned and tended for companies. And there, there is a movement to be fair. There is a large movement now within NHS and much more of a movement more to a small and medium sized software companies, enterprises coming in and building these things, but it all has to do with agility. So it all has to do with constant stakeholder involvement in actually building the piece of software. And, you know, there should be, for example, you know, if I was going to, you know, if, if my fantasy, if someone said, come to me and said, oh, Ed, you know, take a year and rebuild the portfolio, 
you know, I would I would say at a minimum there would need to be one day in the working week if we were to divide up the the stages of the process into weeks or sprints, where that time should be spent testing what you have and getting feedback with the people who are going to be using it. And not to do it in that way is it, it's, it, it is no surprise whatsoever that the software does not turn out the way that people would want it to. And I think that, you know, that's a really great description of, of what's probably happened. As I say, I, I don't have all the details of this process and I've kind of pieced it together. But from what I understand, you know, a few years ago, a pilot project up in Scotland said, let's make an e-portfolio for a few trainees. A, a company or a group of people was commissioned to do that. It existed. And then there wasn't really a future plan to say, well, technology is going to change. People are going to change. Jobs are going to change. There was no thinking ahead. And so a system was built. And then it's been used by more and more people. But there is no process by which that kind of agile nature of, of development is built into it. So it's very hard to then go back yes. to, and, and start that process now when what you've got is a big commission service. Almost um, impossible, actually. Yeah. And, and this is where a lot of the tension comes. And it's actually, interesting thing is, it's actually nobody's fault. Um, I think that's a really good thing to state, actually. You know, the peop all the p different stakeholders are trying to do and achieve something. It's just that where we are now is not really doing that very well. But like you say, it's no one's fault. We are where we are. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important to emphasize as well that you can't, we, I think it's very easy to say, oh, well, the developer should have done a better job. The thing is, everybody wants to do the best that they can. But as Ed says, often it's actually the framework by how all these things work that constrains people. I mean, yeah. I've met so many developers and they just want to create tools that help solve problems. But sometimes the way things work doesn't allow them to do that properly. It's such a shame because, you know, they've probably got really great ideas. It's the organizational thing that is the issue. So, mm. you know, the, the problem, there's just as big a problem with management in software companies and, and the extra burden that management creates. And, you know, the, you know, it's said in some companies, software teams that, you know, the efficiency of, of, a, of a team declines to the inverse power of the number of people involved in it. <laughs> you know, and, and that, that, that feels very, very true. And I think we're going to go on to talk about, um, you know, an experiment that, that we did with LJ or I, that I was involved in, um, looking at this, uh, um, o, o, the O portfolio at the hack day. Um, <laughs> sure. but you know, I think it's, um, it's interesting, you know, it, it needs, it needs to be smaller groups of people, I feel working on these pieces of software and being very, very engaged with the stakeholders. And Ed, if, um, just to, just to sort of interrupt you there, but um, do you, the problem I see is that like things in medicine tend to be evidence based, and you have to have a tool that's validated. So that that is kind of inverse to the agile principle. And I I mean I love things that are being agile, but I think maybe the reason that ePortfolio may never be agile. And this is what scares me is that maybe it will never be agile because things need to be validated, so you can't change things that quickly. But what's, where's think, the validation? What yeah, validation? And, and what are you validating? Because there's different aspects of it. So an e-portfolio isn't really, it's not a thing that needs validating. It's a way of organizing information. So that shouldn't need validation. It should just need to work really brilliantly. Oh my maybe God, I'm amongst friends. <laughs> maybe the, the things, the tools that we're using within it might need validation. And there is educational research which supports um, things like multi-source feedback and mini Pat and mini Kex and all those acronyms. So if you want to look for the evidence, it's out there. Part of the problem for that is that 
how things are in theory and in a pilot program aren't always how they are in reality. But I think the system itself doesn't need revalid doesn't need sorry validation um, or an evidence base. I think the way that users use the system needs to be validated, and that's what agile is. Yeah, exactly. What I think would be can, really cool. You can is, measure that, and you can measure that by how people feel the speed as we achieve something, they are clicking, what their eyes look at, how well they feel the forms, the variation in it. So there are ways of actually validating and, and measuring it is so, ways of doing things. It is so easy to do. I mean, there are software yeah. products that literally allow you to plug a website or uh, you know, plug a website into a product online and let people use it. And you can measure, well, not the eye movement thing, obviously that requires a bit more, but you can measure all of that stuff very, very easily. No, but you can do the eye movement thing with an eyesight camera or or even some sort of like uh tracking like psychodometry. You can um you can actually measure what people look at on the screen to see like how many eye movements they make to go around the page. This is uh Stephen Wing PhD. He's on his research project <laughs> talking. <laughs> One thing I would say is that um there were some initial attempts to look at the data which is um generated by all the thousands of trainees using the ePortfolio. But what they looked at was something relatively simple, which was um, how much it was used and how many logins there were and how many um, forms were created over a kind of time period. But what was interesting about that is it didn't tell us anything we didn't know already. So the thing is that no one does very much until immediately before their appraisal, and then everyone goes mad. And again, there are lots of reasons why that is, and part of it is because people don't like the system and so avoid using it until they absolutely have to. But that was one use of the data that, uh, about usability, which I thought was quite interesting. I've heard m many a uh, head of deanery turn around and say, if you have done all your assessments in the last week before the appraisal, you will not be passing. Yeah. Yeah, that's not true. I'd like to say, well, if you would like to make the system a bit better and make it more likely that I'd like to use it and there was an app, then I'd love to comply. Let's talk about your O-Portfolio. Sure. So what was the idea behind the O-Portfolio? I mean, it's a little bit controversial, and some people will probably get a bit worried and upset about it. But really, the idea was that, well, it's you know, I've tried over the kind of last year to kind of engage different people, and lots of people have been very positive about the concept of trying to get all the stakeholders involved and try and make the system better, because there's a lot of acknowledgement that people aren't very happy. But I've not really seen much movement. There's not been a lot of actual change. And as I say, that's quite difficult because of the systems that kind of exist. So what we thought was, well, it's quite hard to convince people of how things could be better without actually showing them. And that's part of the barrier. Not everyone is kind of up on how lovely and beautiful and fantastic and helpful technology can be. So maybe we need to show them. So we thought we'd have a bit of a go at it. <laughs> it's kind of the idea. Um, yeah. And Ed, I believe you were involved with this. Do you want to tell us a bit more about, you know, how it was built and, and what is the unique point about it? Okay, so I think the first thing, which was actually really interesting, and, and for me, you know, so so originally, um, what happened was sort of Jeremy Walker, and who was also was also involved in Digital Doctor Conference. He runs, uh, he's the CTO for, uh, sorry, Chief Technical Officer for um, Education. Um, he and I spoke. He was coming to the Hack Day, so we we spoke to LJ about the possibility of of doing something like this. And Stephen was involved as well on 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 Twitter, and we got very enthusiastic about it. And we arrived, and, and it turned out we weren't the only people who were enthusiastic about it, because uh, uh, LJ uh, did a description of the problem um, at the start of the day, and then 
people were essentially invited to to join to to, to join up and, and and start working together. So we actually ended up with I think six software developers. Yeah, um, we're a bit jealous because we stole lots of the developers. We did. So we ended up with six software developers and about four or five uh, sort of stakeholders in the system. Um, it's called a gangbang. Uh, <laughs> oh, so, so actually, but, but it was really interesting because the, the first thing that we did was we all sat around a table and we tried to figure out what to do. And I don't know how you felt, felt that that went LJ, but it, it was, a, it, it illustrated perfectly the difficulty that doctors have in specifying what they want Absolutely. Not, and the difficulty that software developers have in understanding that and mm-hmm. translating it into something which can be done in a given amount of time. Yeah. And because we, we, you know, it was, we had people talking over each other. We had people, you know, some, like I had this woman <laughs> sitting next to me who was talking to me while I was trying to listen to, and you know, it was, it was, it was very, very, it was, very, it was a bit crazy. It uh, was. Like our podcast. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was a bit. It enthusiasm, but it was hard to channel it. And then we had, of course, because there was no hierarchy. You know, there <laughs> were different people, different developers playing for position and playing for platform. And oh no, we should do Python. Oh no, we should do Rails. Oh no, we should do you know, .NET. <laughs> Thankfully, no one said .NET. Otherwise, I would have, <laughs> I would have immediately left the group. And okay, gone. okay. So let me, let me get this straight. So in in a group of people who included Ed Wallet and Jeremy Walker, someone said, let's, let's program in Python. Oh, yeah. But th- th- it gets more interesting than that. You're going to love this. Um, so anyway, we decided what we were going to do. We, we... That was quite difficult, wasn't it? Just even, <laughs> I found it so hard to just pin down, okay, so we're going to focus on one thing. Yep. And even just trying to pin that down into a way that, that was kind of then could be split up into tasks and steps and yep. code just seemed to be a really difficult <laughs> Thing. So, so we, we did a very basic modeling thing, essentially, and we decided, we thought, well, what's the most generic aspect of an e-portfolio? What would we call that? What would be the things about it? And we came up with this idea of just an entry. You know, we modeled it as an entry and we said an entry can have various things. You know, it could have, obviously, it needs a title. It needs a date that it's created at. It needs some some text and it might need some categories to sort of try and link it to important domains for the individual trainee. And so we, we, we kind of decided, settled on the simplest model for an e-portfolio, um, just based upon logging, essentially. And I then we, sorry. Once you started, I was just going to say, once you started talking in those kind of terms, so the developers then were like, okay, now, right, we get this concept of an entry now, and we want all these bits of data that need to be attached or, or kind of built into that. That made it much clearer as to how you were thinking, and we then could kind of move forward a bit further. Yeah. Wow, holy crap, did that help you? I mean, that, that's amazing. Yeah. But, you know, I've been saying this, I've been saying this for ages, like modeling is the key thing in software development. I figure out what your models are, what the bits of data and what are the attributes of those data. But doctors understand that so well, because that's what doctors do all the time. Like when you think about the heart, you don't think about the molecular genetics of the heart and what's going underneath on the, you know, uh, with every single country. Actually, maybe you do, Stephen, but the rest of us don't. (laughs) Um, You know, you think of the heart as being, you know, an object um that has properties as and you know it might have a contractility it might eject a certain volume of blood um and you think of it as having uh, having things that it actually does such as mm-hmm. contracting such as relaxing you know such as being supplied you know being supplied with blood or, or whatever um and, and so doctors actually understand this concept of object orientation which i know that, you know 
in programming that simply means that everything is a thing which has properties and which actually can then do other things. They understand it very, very well. And I think it's really interesting to hear LJ say that once we started actually talking in that sort of object-orientated yep. way, which is something that to most people would seem quite technical, actually it made yep. more sense. It did make more sense. Hang on, hang on. I, I, this is a question for Ed. Okay, the, I mean, I find this fascinating because, um, I, I mean, if you're talking between a doctor and someone who writes programs, um, talking to a programmer who writes in a sort of maybe a higher interpreted object orientated program Mm -hmm. and uh, talking to someone who writes low level programs that aren't maybe object orientated, that may be very different. So just to explain, so if, if um, a processor has to do to explain it, a processor has to do certain instructions and you can either tell the processor to do direct instructions. So if you want to add, two plus two you have to write all of the code the many many different steps that you need to tell the processor to write that code or you can use maybe uh what's that's called a low level uh processing or programming um or you can use a language that's maybe higher level and you can just say can you add two plus two for me and that's a higher level language um, and that will do it straight for you. And object orientation, and this took me weeks to get the idea of this, object orientation is that everything that you talk about is an object. So if you talk about students and classrooms, for example, a student will be an object and a classroom be an object. And the way that they that, that, uh, that objects and um, the database relate is called object relational mapping. So relational databases have relations towards each other and objects can relation, uh, relate towards each other. So the database kind of mirrors the objects in that you have uh, many students in a classroom, uh, but you can also have many classrooms. So many students can be in one classroom, but a student can't be in one class uh, in more than one classroom at once. So that's a really horrible way of explaining it, but I hope I've <laughs> shed light on it. But I wonder, Ed, and this is a question for you going back to why I started this rant, is um, do you think it's different? And I suppose you've done some iOS programming, so you've done some programming in Objective-C. Do you think it's different in talking to someone who only speaks a sort of low-level, non-object-orientated language compared to someone who talks a high-level, object-oriented language. Do you think LJ would have had a nice experience with the guy who only programs in C-sharp? I think think it's difficult because I think the current paradigm in software development is so object-orientated that that's very difficult to answer. Um, But saying that, I think that, I mean, no. I mean, so so to to get things, you know, straight, I, I only have ever really known object orientated programming languages. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a computer science graduate. I, w- I never went through, you know, the, the dreaded term of, of learning C and C sharp uh, at university and looking at encryption algorithms and things like that. So well, hang so, on, actually C sharp is, 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 is an object orientated programming language. Well, no, uh, I know, I know, but you know, th- it's still horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, th- so I, I never really came to the, you know, I don't have a C, C background. Um, and I think, you know, because object orientation is so powerful as a way of modeling complex issues into, into software and turning them into solutions, I think that 
you know, yes, absolutely. If LJ had come across a series of people who only sat and write machine code, zeros and ones to get their computers to do things, then mm -hmm. I think that would be very challenging. Um, but I think everybody around the table was object orientated. And once actually object orientation was on the table, um, then it turned into... Pardon a, the pun. Yeah, exactly. It turned, <laughs> it turned uh, a dysfunctional discussion into one which actually allowed us to move forward. And actually what I, and I, this is so powerful, I've seen it again and again and again. And in fact, what I now do with all, my, all the stakeholders who I'm ever involved in is I sit down with them at the very start when we start specifying the project and I explain what object orientation is. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And I find it so fascinating. Um, do, 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 I, 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 we had a long discussion before, especially on the Digital Doctor Conference about is it worth doctors learning how to code and one of the principal reasons whether doctors actually could produce a product or not wasn't the issue it was that uh one of the principal reasons that it would be useful for doctors to learn how to code is that they could have a better understanding of the development process and a better understanding of how to communicate what they want to programmers and i'm really glad to hear lj that you found maybe talking in coder speak quite useful <laughs> I mean, definitely, you know, it's only maybe the last year or so that I've kind of come into more contact with people who do code and speak in binary. Um, <laughs> but I always find it a really amazing experience. And maybe I've been lucky. But I think if you're, you're coming from very different viewpoints, but with a common aim, and there's a lot of goodwill to try and understand each other. And it often starts off being like, I don't know what you're talking about. Or me saying, I don't know what you want from me. I don't know what mm. you want me to specify. I don't understand. But, but it very quickly turns into, oh, do you want to know that? Okay, fine. And it does have to be that backwards and forwards. But from my point of view, it's always been a very, very um, productive, very rapidly conversation. So, according to God, you will. <laughs> <laughs> if I could just give people who are listening maybe some hints about how they can make this process easier um, if they're thinking about a product, um, it's very simple. One is think about objects. Think about who are the people, who are the players, so forth, in what you want to do. So if you were building an electronic patient health record, it would be the patient would be a player. Uh, the, a ward might be a player. A doctor might be a player. And think about you know, what properties those individuals might have. So a patient might have a name, as Stephen was saying, you know, a doctor would have a name and a grade, um, you know, and then you could think about relationships. You know, you could think about a doctor who then might have many patients who they were looking after. So that's one way to think about it. And the other way, which is really useful for developers, is if you think in terms of what are called user stories. So you think in terms, and this actually, we actually take these user stories and we write code that translates them from what you say into something which the computer understands. And these are really helpful because they're really, uh, again, you can tap into this. I understand what you mean if you tell me to write a user story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, for example, you know, the way we tell people to do it is you say, okay, as a doctor, I should be able to sign in to the electronic health record. So it's always the same pattern. It's as a object, I should be able to do something. And then some people, which I actually really like to do, add on the end so that I can do something else. So there's like a justification so, it's, you know, so that my data is secure, so that other people can't access it. And if you were to, you know, if, if, if everyone would just start doing this, if you were to sit down with an Excel spreadsheet and write down, you know, the 25 user stories 
for what you wanted your piece of software to do and give that to a software developer. I guarantee you the piece of software, even if they did the current approach, which is to disappear for six months without involving you, would be so much better. <laughs> so um, if you were to type the word cucumber into Google, what do you think the first thing you would get back would be? Would it be the Wikipedia page about the vegetable? Well, I, 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 I already know the answer to this. I would have thought it'd be a picture of a cucumber that grows in the ground. Absolutely not. So the first thing you get back if you type cucumber into Google is cukes.info. So that's C-U-K-E-S.info. And it's talking about behavior-driven development, which is exactly what Ed was describing there. And it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, modeling... Um, and I suppose it goes back to what Wei Kiong was saying just at the beginning about what is the jobs to be done by this application and uh, using what we've talked about before, the minimal, uh, the minimally viable product. So what is the, the bare bones essential, which I believe is what you created at the hat day in ePortfolio. What is the bare bones essential this application needs to do? It needs to log in, log out, and it needs to do this thing. I mean, behavior-driven development is, is modeling the user's and and that can be analogous to stakeholders and it's modeling the user's behavior in terms of something that can be translated into code so it really does uh smooth that transition between coder and someone who has uh, an interest in the application but i.e. stakeholder right and um, actually um, before even before even kind of getting into any of these conversations on the blog itself what people did right at the beginning without kind of having developers involved was say as a trainee i want to be able to log my learning easier. I want to be able to send a picture via an email like I do with my Kindle and appear in my portfolio. So they were already do using that language very naturally. Yeah. I think I think this is uh, this is a, a topic for another show, don't you think? We can easily speak an hour about this and I think <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating. Well, no, but I think this is really important. Yeah. Actually this does fit in because this is this is the bare bones of what, what it takes for a, a, a doctor who who knows the minimum about IT to be able to communicate effectively to other stakeholders and to the people who are going to actually have to build this thing in code, what it is that they want. And I think it's, it's very easy to just say, oh, well, it was a, you know, the company don't understand our needs and it's all their fault and they haven't understood. But actually, it's partly, you know, as, as we went back to what Eljo was saying, and I think I mentioned as well, it's nobody's fault. Like it, it, it's, everybody has got a small part to play in this end result. And with simple skills, you know, imparting simple skills. And I guess this is the whole point of the digital doctor sort of movement, I guess. Yeah, it's the whole thrust. Yeah. The thrust, mm. um, you know, is, is it, this, this thrust. is important. This is an important part of it. And it, it's not difficult, you know, uh, to, to learn the, the ba these basic skills and it can make, um, you know, so much difference. I just, you know, this is a, a superb topic for the next digital doctor conference, wherever that will be. We need to have almost half a whole day on, on modeling, and I think it would be, I, I just think it would be very, very useful. That's a great session, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. as you say, it could be a whole day. It could, and I think it would be so useful. And it would just break down so many barriers, gives a common language for for users to talk to developers. It's just, um, yeah, definitely something we need to explore. We'll bring some cucumbers along. <laughs> In fact, do you know what the language of cucumber is called? Huh? No. It's actually a, a domain-specific language, and it, it's called Gherkin. Uh, so this way of describing things, you know, mm. in order to avoid silly mistakes, as a maths idiot, I want to be able to sum, do the sum of two numbers, and mm. then a series of 
of steps that you do to add those two numbers together um, is called, the language is actually called Gherkin. So what did you build in the end um, during the old portfolio project two weekends ago? What didn't we build, I think, would be a better question. <laughs> exactly. So we built, um, we, we came with this idea, going back to it, of a single entry being the most globally sort of important aspect of, of, any, of any portfolio online. Um, and we decided that we wanted to build as many platforms as possible and have those talking to what's called an API. So essentially what we did is we built a, a, a like a database in the cloud um, mm -hmm. with ports on it that allow any platform to simply plug into those ports, get data and push data up. Um, so we built that and that was built um, originally in Python. And then the second day it was rewritten in Ruby on Rails. Um, you're now starting to understand some of the politics involved. <laughs> um, so we had this, this. No Python. <laughs> <laughs> so we had this uh, this core um, this core API, and then what we did around that was we built a website, um, which I think you can still it still exists actually. It does, yeah. yes. And we we have a wonderful URL for it. It's uh, oportfol.io. <laughs> We that's, were pretty proud of that. That's possibly the worst. Uh, yeah. Actually, no, no. I get it now. I get it now. now yes, genius. What are you talking it. about? It's just a yeah. nightmare to tell people what the Actually, URL is. I, I own this URL. I, I own this domain name. It's healthresearch.ch. Oh, wow. <laughs> so anyway, we built the website, which is, is uh, oportfol.io. Um, and then we built also an iPhone app, which allows you to get all of your things, your entries from the cloud, and it allows you to create new entries and put them up to the cloud. And we also built a Android app as well, uh, which does the same thing. And to make it even better, we then decided... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Wait, wait, say that again. We built a web app, an iPhone app, an Android app, and a mobile web app. And this was like in a weekend? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty amazing like what they built. hours or something? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was absolutely mad. I, I always find it. So one of the things I tweeted out was code is magic. Because we started off with, you know, scribbling some things on a bit of paper and a quite chaotic conversation. And from that, we ended up with all this stuff, which talked to each other. We gave a demo where we put an entry in and then it appeared on the web app and on the Android app and on the iPhone app. And, you know, it worked. That's why it's called a gangbang. <laughs> it really actually is. Yeah. Can I just say one thing? When Ed brought his iPhone over with the old portfolio running on his phone, and uh, we used Siri to input data into it, so you just said lumbar puncture and no described way. it, and it uh, it inputs it directly. So you basically have you know voice controlled entry into your old portfolio. Yeah, no way. I, that, that, I rewrote that, I rewrote Siri over the weekend as well. No way. That's actually <laughs> pointless. Like really, really, you did that. That's amazing. And that was one of the things people have asked for previously when people have been generating ideas, you know, oh, why isn't there voice recognition? Oh, look, there it is. It exists now. Imagine you could have a voice recognition for the whole procedure. So, okay, you're starting a lumbar puncher and you put your phone on the side and you go, okay, well, you know, this one. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Well, I, I hit one of your osteophytes, you uh, osteophytes. <laughs> But, but no, but I mean, it was, I, I didn't expect that to work, but actually it did. Um, uh, using... It's genius, it's genius. I think uh, it's very good. I think the thing to say is that, you know, we, no one would claim that we'd rebuilt the whole of the e-portfolio, but what we did do was show what amazing things can be achieved by 
people who have an idea of what they want and people who can make it happen in a short amount of time with lots of enthusiasm can actually make something incredibly functional and we were all very proud of it um, and yeah. thought it was really beautiful. I mean, like, look what you guys did in such Incredible a short space of time. Incredible functionality, really. Yeah. Congrats. <laughs> well done. Yeah. So where do we go from here? I mean, yeah, where do we... I mean, yeah. What's the I mean, way... For, I mean, I think we should start winding should, things up now. You sound uh, like Rob Dyke. Well, speaking of, you know, what to do with the current NHS e-portfolio, how do you make that better? Well, I think competition helps. I don't know whether the portfolio is going out to, to tender again. I don't know, but I always think that helps. And perhaps if there's a different way of doing it and people can show that it can be done for the same, uh, for the same cost, but a much higher quality product, I think that's one way to really push things forward. Because I guess I mean, at the moment, there's only one player, effectively. Yeah, I think part of the problem is it, it's all about, as Ed said, it's all about the commissioning and the procurement. And so it's not necessarily... The, the developers, they're constrained by the current system. So I think what needs to happen for anything to change is somebody needs to look at this whole model of how we commission and fund it um, and need to change that quite dramatically. Otherwise, we're really not going to be able to get any change. And I, I, what I'd like to see, and I, this is a project I'm very uh, keen to work on, um, partly because of my just my love of building things and working with enthusiastic people, partly because some of my medical and uh, development pedigree is in sort of medical education. Um, I'd, I'd like to continue working on this. And I think, as we've called it, the O portfolio could actually be, and I think, you know, it was LJ um, and um, who, who was it, Sarah? Or who was the other? Uh, Eleanor, Eleanor. Um, is someone who's a, who's a trainee, but she's actually out of program at the moment. So yeah. she's not foundation doctor. She's not in a higher training program. And she has no portfolio because if you're not paying money to a college or a training program, you don't get one. So actually there is a group of people who have a real need now, today, for an e-portfolio. And so what we could do, which I think would be incredible, would be to create one for them, which did lots of the things that we'd like any generic e-portfolio to do and demonstrate some of the functionality that would be really valuable to people. Yeah. So we could go on. Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 I think that, that's a nice thing because that's not too political. We're not mm. we're not saying, oh, your your system is rubbish and you guys are stupid and we can do it much better. We're just saying, well, let's let's you know, there, there's a need to be met. You know, the, 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 these these trainees do not have the the, the, the necessary system at the moment. Um, can we play around in this space and build something yeah. that's useful for them and also showcases what it is we want? And hopefully yeah, yeah. other people can then learn from that. Exactly. Okay, so uh, 2200 on February the 7th, the idea was born. <laughs> Actually, and, for that. Yeah. And, no, but, but, but for playing around in the space for people who don't have portfolios, I think that's, that's a really mm. you know, captive market. And, you know, if, if it's all theory of innovation and theory of disruption, it is always the need that is not being met where any big things start. Is that right? I hope I did, got so, the that's theory. That's so intellectual, right. I don't even know how to respond to I that. I mean, <laughs> I, I think we should end on that very phrase. Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you for listening to the Digital Doctor podcast. I think we should end on that very philosophical phrase by Hui Kiong. And uh, thank you for listening. And thank you for LJ. For uh, yes, on. yes. Our first guest, amazing. I think you'll be a hard act to follow. Thank <laughs> you for inviting me. <laughs> thank you, LJ. Bye. 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 Check for pulse.